You're listening to the Podcast Network. Listen. Learn. Evolve. Man, that was quick. I didn't think you were going to answer there for a second. I've got regular phone runners. I've got a hook now. G'day, Cobber. How's that? I'm all plugged in. <laughs> That's very good. G'day, Mike Seafang. Oh, yes, g'day, Cam. This is the official one, is it? <laughs> yeah, this is the official one. Thanks for uh, destroying the illusion for the audience out there that we do this first time every yeah, time, yeah. man. Uh, so, buddy, you're coming. You're, you're joining me on the G'day World show today from sunny Adelaide, which has been which has been the butt of many jokes on G'day World over the years. Funny you mention, I actually have a mashup podcast of all the mentions of Adelaide that's going to come back to bite you in the ass one day, young man. <laughs> hey, uh, are you speaking on a headset microphone? What are you doing? I am. Is it sounding bad for you? Yeah, it sounds uh, like you're in the dunny. Yeah. And you're actually in the dunny when I called you earlier. I'm wondering yeah. if you've gone back. I'm going to go into that. Is that better? How sounding? Yeah, it sounds a little bit better. Yeah, it's a bit of a cheapy headset. I didn't have time to set up the whole mixing desk and go geeky on you. Oh, right. So, mate, um, tell everybody what they're going to be listening to on this uh, special edition. What they'll be listening to is a very special workshop called the Bucky Balls Down Under uh, workshop which was done by Professor Sir Harry Croto, one of the dudes on the team that discovered Carbon 60. And I was lucky enough to get along to three of his sessions and do some audio recording, and he's kind of given us permission to put um, one of them out there as a podcast to see what it does. So for people that don't know who Sir Harry is or what Carbon 60 is, are you going to give him a bit of an intro? Or are you going oh, to I'll tell anyone, but it's, it's pretty self-explanatory in the, in the talk. Um, I'm, I mean, you know me, Cam. Uh, I've done 25 years in IT, and I've kind of had enough of that. I'm trying to get myself into um, nanotech or material science or biotech or one of these emerging fields. And one of the building blocks of uh, certainly nanotechnology and material science is the molecule carbon-60, and it's used to make things like bucky tubes and, and some of the other structures that will have been heard about by some of these uh, emerging science types. So carbon-60 is simply the molecule of carbon that arranges itself in a shape not unlike a soccer ball. And why is it called a buckyball, Mike? It's called a buckyball because the architect Buckminster Fuller designed the geodesic domes in the 60s, one of which uh, Harry saw in about 63 at the World Expo. Go, get closer to your mic, Mike. I'm closer to my mic. It's a cheapy little headset and it's busy <laughs> its own way around. How's that sound? Uh, yeah, you still sound like you're in the dunny, man. But uh, man, we might have to have, we might have a technical problem because I was clear as a bell the first time, wasn't I? Yeah, uh, yeah, you were. You were fine. I don't know what, yeah. what's going on. It's got to be a physically the thing drooping away as we speak. Anyway, there keep talking. Okay, so where were we? Yeah, you were yeah, Bucky there. Balls. Bucky invented the geodesic dome. Yeah, yeah. Buckminster Fuller. Um, so, in honour of the architect who did some of this beautiful design work making these big geodesic domes. It was named Buckminster Fuller, and because it has properties not unlike benzene, its proper suffix is an "-ene", so it's Buckminster Fullerene. So it, it's uh, a naturally occurring carbon, uh, form of carbon, right? It's one of... Not that natural. It was kind of discovered by bombarding uh, carbon with uh, the, the graphite form of carbon with laser beams. turns out you produce it every time you start an oxywell or a Bunsen burner. When you get the yellow flame, you're actually producing it in quantity. So it's not that naturally occurring. It probably does exist where the conditions are right. 
But what's interesting is it's really easy to make in mass quantities. So I think you can order it by the ton from Japan, for example. And what's it good for? A whole number of things, as it turns out. So everything from curing cancer to making steel ten times stronger and ten times lighter. It's also good for uh, killing bass, apparently. Bass, is that right? Yeah, I was uh, doing some research before on Wikipedia. Apparently there was um, there was an article in New Scientist magazine about a year ago that suggested that uh, they were putting buckfullerenes into water at concentrations of 0.5 parts per million, and they found that largemouth bass suffered a 17-fold increase in cellular damage in the brain tissue after 48 hours. Awesome. Trust you to find the only negative environmental <laughs> spin on this thing. <laughs> so, so don't go drinking it, kiddies. Don't go drinking your C60 atoms, is all I can say. Uh, you know, Good for lots of things, not for drinking. That's the, that's the plan. In fact, uh, I only should mention that, because one, one of the crusades that Harry is on is he's trying to recruit the younger generation of scientists to actually do something productive with this gear. I mean, fair enough, they've kind of uncovered a, a, an interesting, stable, large structure, but that's not going to solve any of the world's problems on its own. So one of the reasons we're keen to get this information out there into the hands of a younger audience is that hopefully it might inspire them to think about what you can do with these damn things and do some good rather than just kill them back sort of. So um, tell the audience then what Sir Bucky was doing when he was giving this speech. Where, where was it? What was the deal? Okay, so Sir Harry happened to be in sunny Adelaide, that marvellous place once again. Uh, I believe it was a Science Week activity and there's an organisation, a national organisation called Education AU, had um, done some work to organise Sir Harry to come out. And the idea was to give workshops to as many kids as possible about this carbon-60 stuff and science in general. Kind of almost a, a recruiting exercise for, for science, I guess you could say. Adelaide has, has a facility called the Technology School of the Future out of Hindmarsh, and that facility was used to host bunches of kids physically in the place, but also to stream live to the web using the Education Department's Centra um, facility. So really it was an experiment in what they call blended learning, how some kids in the building and, uh, and about a 1,000 kids, I think it was, on the end of uh, this centre of technology in various schools around Australia. Excellent. And what, what, what sort of ages were the kids? Uh, they were young'uns, um, sort of junior secondary school type kiddies. There's a bit of a range there. We don't know how old the people in that were listening remotely were. But the other ones in the room were probably uh, year eight, year nine. Okay, and you recorded uh, a number of different sessions, right? And we're going to sort of string them together and give people a bit of a listen? What I thought we'd do is I'll, I'll give you the whole Bowles Workshop 3. That was a more polished lecture that was given to a group of older kids who just sat there. In the morning there were two workshops to the younger kids where Sir Harry got them to explore big numbers and, and counting mechanisms and shapes and actually build things. Um, and I've actually posted one of those shows in its entirety up on the Learn Dog Radio site for you to enjoy but we'll actually post a full-blown lecture from start to finish. Excellent. Well, thanks, mate. Anything else we need to say in terms of uh, an introduction? Uh, so I think, well, I'd just like to thank everybody who let me get involved. I kind of talked my way into it because I really wanted to listen to the content and I was happy to help out by recording some audio. So I packed up the old Learndog recording studio, recorded some audio, and I've been working with the guys from the Technology School of the Future to figure out a, a sensible distribution mechanism for them. Um, we've done our Hello World sort of podcast and other things. They, of course, obviously want to share their learnings and findings with the guys from Education AU because, after all, they're the guys who brought Sir Harry to town. So, yeah, kind of a big thanks all around to everybody who got involved. 
and I am in touch with Sir Harry and try to keep him up to date with some statistics on how many people download this puppy and whether it gets out there in the wild and gets remixed as an MP3, as, as you know, podcast can. All right, so uh, give LearnDog Radio a plug, and then we'll get stuck into Sir Harry. Oh, a plug. We just wander over to LearnDog.com, so that's www.learndog, L-E-A-R-N-D-O-G.com, and follow the bouncing balls to the um, LearnDog Radio blog, or better still sign up to the, the regular RSS feed for the LearnDog Pup blog and uh, join our community. Good on you, Fang. All right, Cam. Thanks for the call and uh, enjoy the show. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Sir Harold Croto, Professor Sir Harold Croto, no less. Wolf. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Sir Harry Croto. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, um, and I uh, hope uh, what I have to say is a bit interesting. And um, technology, being technology, doesn't always work. Um, partly because there are some problems, but uh, they will be solved in time. We're taking part in an experiment, and that is the, as far as I'm concerned, the, there are two major uh, in, uh, developments or inventions um, for education. The first was the printing press. Until that, basically there were no books. When the printing press came along, individuals like you could write books and people could read them. And the Internet is the second one, because audiovisual material can be uh, beamed around the world. Uh, almost without censorship, because some people think you shouldn't see this and see that. But now, from an educational point of view, it should be possible for the best educational material to go everywhere else. And this is one of the first experiments in this. Now, you might be looking, have looked at this, you might have wondered what it is. Does anybody know what it is? Well, it's hemoglobin. Okay. Science, fundamental science, has unraveled the structure of this molecule. And this is the molecule that allows you to live. It captures oxygen in your lungs, and it's a molecular machine. It's the first molecular machine. People talk about nanotechnology, but in fact, uh, living systems invented nano uh, machines many millions of years ago. And we'll come back to that. Okay, um, well, not sure what's happening here. Uh, we're going to talk about architecture in nanospace and what that actually is. For that, I want to introduce you to the person I think is the greatest living Australian. You might think it should be a cricketer after uh, this week, but in fact this is John Cornforth. Uh, he's a good friend of mine, lives in Brighton, in, or just outside Brighton in England. He's an Australian and um, got the Nobel Prize about 1975. Um, he went deaf at the age of 20, and yet overcame all that uh, to make some brilliant um, advances in chemistry. And um, he uh, is also someone whom I admire because of his tremendous humanity, sense of humor, and many other things. He's on our website. It's a website that I'll bring you to. Well, uh, what I'm going to talk about... Um, one thing is radio astronomy, because um, we use this radio telescope to look out into space. And these are black clouds that are streaming across the sky. And if you take a radio telescope and you look at these black areas where no light is obviously coming, uh, radio waves are coming out of this. Light is radiation in the optical wavelength. Infrared is in the infrared. Out of these clouds, infrared, but particularly microwave radiation is coming out. And we use this telescope um, with my colleagues in Canada to look at the point just in that area of the black cloud. And we discovered 
that in that there were molecules that were in the gas phase and as they rotated they gave rise to um, whoops whoops let's go back there that these radio waves actually beamed across space and could be detected by the radio telescope and we found that there were carbon chain molecules in this in the gas clouds now these gas clouds are very important because these are the places where stars are formed all right in fact stars like our sun and the planets that form are formed out of gas clouds uh, of this kind and I thought I'd show you this picture. It's a low picture out of the local Ottawa citizen. And just to point out, this is what I used to look like. Okay, now you, you're going to end up like me too, so one day. So don't don't uh, be too uh, humorous about it. I, I used to have some hair as well, as you notice. Uh, Lorne Avery, he never had any hair. I don't think even when he was born. So, but in, in your case, some of you guys are going to lose your hair too. But just to indicate that you do get old occasionally. Um, in fact, in the newspapers, they th said that uh, these discoveries were due thanks to Canadian work in radio astrology. I mean, some of you might not know the difference, but there is a difference between astronomy and astrology. And this led to an interest in exploding stars, stars that exploded. And these are very interesting and should be interesting because, in fact, inside a star, hydrogen is squeezed into helium, the massive gravitational uh, attraction of a star such as the Sun is such that you can squeeze atoms together in a way you can't do in the laboratory easily it's a fusion process the temperature rises to about a million degrees and at that temperature uh, hydrogen is squeezed into helium and helium three helium nuclei into carbon and carbon and helium into oxygen and in fact every single atom in your body carbon nitrogen and oxygen atom was once synthesized in a star we now know by the study of what goes on in these stars and looking at the processing and how planets and stars form is that basically every single one of you all those atoms and most of the hydrogen too was once inside a star and fortunately for you uh, this star blew up blew your atoms out into space and they floated around for millions of years and ended up on the earth okay and you're lucky to be here because most of the carbon is still out in space. In fact, most of the people who could, this guy who should be sitting on, he's probably still out there in space. And unfortunately, a lot of people around who I think should be out in space. <laughs> um, and anyway, one day the sun will blow up. We estimate in 5,000 million years the same thing will happen with us to the sun, and it'll be hot even here in Adelaide. Okay, and it'll be rather warm, about four or five thousand degrees. And these are the stars that we, from which um, we can look at the gas around a star like this and show that it's full of carbon, okay, nitrogen and oxygen being blown out. And that was what I was interested in in the sort of early 80s. And one day I ended up in Rice University, Texas, where Rick Smalley had developed a fantastic apparatus and where he used a laser to vaporize uh, metals. Okay, so you vaporize the metal and you get a temperature about five to ten thousand degrees. If you take a magnifying glass, you can actually get about a thousand degrees or so with the sunlight. Okay, but with a laser, you can actually, if you get a big laser, up to nearly a million degrees. And people are trying to use a laser to uh, get fusion in the laboratory. Anyway, I suggested that instead of putting the metal inside this, that we actually take a graphite target and try to vaporize this and produce the um, sort of molecules that we saw in a star, okay, and also in space. 
So that was the idea. Let's vaporize this and produce these carbon chain molecules. The idea was, can we simulate the conditions in a star, the chemical conditions, in laboratory? So here's the plasma. Uh, mass passes, it passes through in this little hole in the skimmer into a mass spectrometer, and we can tell the mass of these species. That was the simple idea. S simulating the conditions in a star. In fact, if you want to who know who mummy is, this is mummy. All right? That's where you came from. And uh, to do this, we had some fantastic students, Jim Heath and Sean O'Brien, and Yuan Liu from China. And when we did that, this is the data. It's always nice to look at the data. Um, and we had a signal here, very strong signal. And I wrote on my printout, C60 question mark. What is going on here? We had discovered that there was a very strong signal for a bundle of carbon atoms, a bundle of 60 carbon atoms. And this was 70. All these are others. This is 11, 12, 13, 14. This was known data, but here was an incredibly strong signal. So what was so special about a bundle of 60 carbon atoms? It's row C60 huge and C70 also. This is one of my favorite images because it was a historical moment. So we're working with graphite, and it seemed that one idea was maybe you had this sheet of hexagons and somehow wrapped up into a ball. Okay? Here was essentially this hexagonal floor. In fact, this is the floor. I was staying with Bob Curled and Rick Smalley, the two my colleagues who were the senior colleagues on this project. And I was staying with Bob, and this is the floor of his loo. Okay, every morning I would sit and contemplate this floor. What was so special about it? What are these hexagons doing? And in fact, we went out to to sort of dinner at this Mexican restaurant, and we were discussing what this thing with 60 carbon atoms could be. And this is the table on which we were drawing images and discussing this. Unfortunately, they cleared the table when I got back to the photograph to see what we've been actually talking about. And the idea was maybe Buckminster Fuller, who designed these geodesic domes, maybe he had got some clue to what was going on. So we got hold of his book. And I had also made something for my children many years beforehand, which was a map of the sky. And you see there's a hexagon here, but also a pentagon. So this is actually like a globe, but it's actually a map of the sky and with all the constellations out there. And I, I couldn't remember the, the shape because it's many years beforehand. And I was going to ring my wife, Mark, who's on the back there, because we sort of, uh, but I unfortunately didn't call her. But I sort of said, well, you know, I've got something that may have 60 vertices, but it's got maybe pentagons as well. And Rick Smalley, my colleague, cut out some hexagons and tried to to make a, a cage out of hexagons, but neither of us knew that you can't do it with just hexagons. You need pentagons as well. Okay? And when he remembered the pentagons that I'd mentioned, it closed up into a ball and he made this little model with 60 vertices. And that was a fantastic moment because we'd actually produced a molecule which had the same structure as a soccer ball. And uh, that was just unbelievable. I'd never heard of it. No one I knew had ever heard it, no one had ever thought of it as far as we knew. But we discovered that in 1970, a Japanese scientist had thought about this molecule and published it in, in Japanese. But nobody I knew knew about it. And he published the, that, that, you know, this idea, a brilliant idea, that maybe this molecule could form. Anyway, we discovered it. And what had happened was, basically, we'd used a laser. It had produced a plasma, a 10,000 degree 
this would vaporize the graphite and off would come these buckyballs and that was a, an amazing thing that these beautiful molecules would assemble spontaneously that was a very important discovery um, and it told us something about the assembly on a nanoscale that we didn't know before anyway that was it and here we had this beautiful molecule and I thought I'd show you uh, the picture Jim Heath uh, is over here Rick Smalley who invented the apparatus Sean O'Brien the two students and Bob Curl who had first uh, sort of discussed uh, the, the fact that I should go and see Rick Smalley to find out what he was doing and uh, that's the team that made the discovery but we needed proof all we had is a number 60 the question was how to prove it and to prove it we had to make some and get enough to actually see okay at, the mo at that time we only had you know a little puff in a mass spectrometer mass spectrometers are very sensitive and we hadn't got any to see but so we spent about five years doing that and two students who helped me was Amit Sarkar and jo Jonathan Hare have any of you seen a program called Rough Science? nobody? I think it's shown over here but anyway Jonathan is the star of that program and they helped me and here what we did was we took two rods of graphite and you put a discharge across those rods and you get a soot you put that soot in benzene and you get a sort of red colored liquid and Jonathan put that on my desk on the Monday now I was looking at this this is amazing because if you take pencil lead graphite it doesn't dissolve okay in anything it certainly doesn't dissolve in benzene you take diamond it doesn't dissolve if you've got a diamond ring and it dissolves you'd be pretty pissed off about it right because so it costs a lot of money and there it dissolves in front of your eyes but we took graphite carbon put a discharge through it and it dissolved in benzene on that Monday I was looking at this I thought this is unbelievable what's going on here and uh, that was we started to do some experiments during the week and on the on the fr on the Thursday we tried an experiment which didn't work unfortunately but on the Friday I got a call from Nature and that's the journal and uh, <laughs> the uh, they asked me whether I would uh, referee this this paper I said sure I'll do it and it was this the solid C60 a new form of carbon by Kratchmer, Lamb, Fosterophilus and Huffman I read this paper and said oh shit this is bad news and in there was a wine red to brown liquid we'd be just been beaten to the draw on this thing and they had a fantastic image of these crystals crystals of pure carbon now if you'd shown that and said you could dissolve pure carbon in benzene before this picture or certainly before 1985 uh, you would have been thrown out of the chemistry lesson right no one would have believed you but in fact it was true and in fact it turns out there were two structures by chromatography you can separate the red solution the red is C70 a slightly elongated like a, an, uh, an American uh, or an Australian football Australian rules football elongated like a rugby ball but C60 the round one is magenta so it's a very beautiful result and in fact we had actually discovered that and we could look at this and prove that when we could get it in the laboratory by analytical methods that it was actually a molecule like this and that was C70 and this is the team at Sussex Dave Walton who I first worked on carbon chains with uh, Roger who discovered that you could separate these by chromatography and Jonathan and Abdul Sadar who got the mass spectrum but unfortunately we were second in but coming in second is better than coming in third 
That led to a lot of interesting things, such as nanotubes. How many of you heard of nanotubes or bucky tubes? How many of you have heard? Okay, I mean, these are amazing things. These are, if you take this molecule, okay, and split it down the middle, which you can actually do here. Let's, let's just do this, all right? You can actually now take two ends of this and take a sheet of graphite, which is basically a sheet of hexagons, okay? Roll the sheet into a tube and put these on the ends, okay? Imagine you've got now a tube of graphite, and that material, if we could produce it in bulk and put them into bundles, bundles with a lot in them, 10 to the 14, which is 100 million million in one bundle, you would have a material which is about 100 times stronger than steel and one-sixth the weight. Now imagine that. You would build skyscrapers so strong they wouldn't fall down in earthquakes. You build bridges which are tremendously strong and light. You could build cars which would go 500 miles, 1,000 miles on a gallon of gasoline. And if you had a crash, they would just bounce. It, you would really ha it would revolutionize transport. It would revolutionize civil engineering. You would build an airplane if the engines failed. They wouldn't crash like that airplane did yesterday. They would just glide. All right? We know this material is possible, but we have no idea how to make it in bulk at the present time. That's a challenge for you. All right? The material could also be used in the next generation of computers. Imagine what you can do now with computers. You think that's fantastic? You should be able to compress by a factor uh, about a million elements where we now can put one on a chip. Okay? And certainly 10,000 is possible by using molecules as switches instead of lumps of silicon. And that seems possible. So here we are. These nanotubes are very exciting materials. And in fact, look at this. This is a cross-section of one, and, it's, and it bends. Here you see, like, like a rubber tubing. You see that internal kink on the inside. Now, if you tried that with a carbon fiber, which is some, some of the strongest materials now, they just crack. But these, they don't bend. But if you put them all together, they will be very stiff and very strong. Imagine, you, you can try this experiment. Take a box of straws, okay? And spray all the straws with a very weak glue, like post-it glue, and put them together. And now you'll get an incredibly strong object. You can stand on it, okay? And it won't break. And that is the scale. If you scale that down to nanoscale, you'll have incredibly strong revolutionary materials. And to give you an idea of how big these things are, this is a carbon fiber, a standard carbon fiber that's been broken. And coming out of the center of this, can you see this white line? Can you see that there? That is a nanotube. Right? It gives you an idea. There it is coming out of the center. That's the material that one of you, some young scientist, not an old sort of geezer like me, this is a problem, a ma major technical problem to be solved. And there's a whole load of things. You can make compounds of this. There's a whole chemistry associated with it. Okay? You can put chlorines, or in this case, benzene rings on it. You see them? There are actually there are five on this. It's all like, almost like an animal which is walking. Right? It's a five-legged animal. All right? There are five phenyl groups in a hydrogen. I'm not sure what this animal does with that, but you, know, you never know what they're up to. But basically, you can pass it around just to give you an idea. You can make giant fullerenes. This is... This is C240, and we can see those under a microscope. Not just C60, but larger ones as well. That's the first part of my talk. Now I want to talk about my favorite molecule, which is shown here. Um, this is nitrosoethane, and in fact, 
it looks like this. Does it, does it roll? You see? It looks a bit like a dog, right? And it's my dog, made of carbon, <laughs> hydrogen, okay, and nitrogen, and it's got a red nose because it's been drinking. And in fact, what we know, and if we do the sort of science that I enjoy, which is called spectroscopy, it studies molecules, not just the structure, but what the molecules do. And my dog actually can shake its head, okay? Look at its tail. From the rear, it looks like this, okay? And in fact, it's, as it's been drinking, you know what the problem is when you've been drinking, you, you have a problem. I, I, so basically, um, it's really quite a, an interesting thing. And we can study the vibrations and motions of molecules like that. Okay, so it's a whole new ball game. And that brings me back to the image I showed you at the beginning of molecular machines. Now, there's a lot of talk about nanotechnology. How many of you heard of nanotechnology? Let me hear. How many of you heard of uh, prey and nanorobots that will eat you up and say, uh, yeah, you've all that, all that crap, you know? Well, basically, uh, there is nothing really new about nanotechnology. Nanotechnology is a deeper perspective in chemistry, in molecular physics, and molecular biology. We're going into a new area where we're starting to think about these molecules in detail. And let me show you why, first of all, um, cannot open the file. Okay, well, don't worry about that because I've just realized why that is. And that is because I don't need to now. Because uh, I'm, all, I'm in hyperlink mode. Sorry about this. As you breathe in, in hemoglobin, this fantastic molecule... Um, it is captured, and in the center of this ring is an, an Fe, an iron, an iron ion, Fe2+. When it captures oxygen, the size of that iron changes size, so it expands, and it's linked to this histidine molecule, and you see it pushes it like a lever. All right? So he captures oxygen in your lungs, grabs it, holds onto it, it's got to capture as much as possible. If you're running the marathon you want to, and you want to play football or whatever, tennis, or you want to go for a run on the beach or swimming, you want to capture the oxygen as efficiently as possible in the lungs. But the molecule's got to be rather smart because as it's transported to where you need it, it's got to release it. All right? So it can burn the food up to produce the energy to make your muscles move. So it's a very clever very sophisticated molecule. It's the first recognized molecular machine. It was, its structure was determined by Max Perutz about the same time as the structure of DNA. In fact, Max Perutz is the person who developed the X-ray techniques that were used to get the structure of DNA. And who actually originally invented those X-ray techniques, by the way? Does anybody know? Well, they came from Adelaide. It's the Braggs, okay? In fact, Adelaide is a place where probably one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century, who's had more impact probably than anybody else, comes from. And do you know his name? Anybody, any, any Nobel Prize winners from Adelaide? Well, apparently Howard Florey. And what, okay, now then, from the students, from, as one of you who doesn't know, what, what, uh, 
What did Flory do? Penicillin. Penicillin. One of the greatest humanitarian advances of all time. Okay? It, people think it was Fleming. Fleming discovered penicillin, but he didn't do anything with it for 10 years. He didn't know. It was Flory who recognized at the start of the Second World War that maybe penicillin was able to save a lot of lives. And they did a fantastic experiment. He was the person who really made penicillin, um, uh, so the use of penicillin possible. Fleming did nothing. In fact, it should really have been Flory of all people. And um, uh, his team who really worked out how to do it. In fact, they, they took 12 mice. It's considered one of the most miraculous experiments of all time. They took 12 mice, uh, and they I don't know what they inoculated the, the mice with, but uh, the, the six that were inoculated with penicillin actually survived, and the six that went, they died. At that moment, they realized they had basically a really powerful um, sort of antibiotic, and then the problem was to make it in bulk. And it was a massive problem to make it in bulk. And it was finally solved and saved millions of lives. So if you want to, you know, if you want to save a few lives, be a doctor. But if you want to save millions of lives, there are areas of uh, drugs and other sort of technologies which can actually be and will have to be in the future very effective. Anyway, captures oxygen, it moves this lever. And then if you look at it, that lever is attached to some other groups. And here we see it. There's the little lever moving. Very small movement here. And then it moves the whole of this molecule around to operate. And here's the full molecule moving. As you're breathing in, that molecule is capturing oxygen and enabling you to, to live. We can make nanowires. This is one of our successes at Sussex. We've made a tube of graphite, it's a nanotube or a bucky tube, and we've got the central is carbon and the outer one is molybdenum sulfide, which is another sheet material. So we've been able to make a nanowire which is insulated. So these will be the first wires to go into computers, molecular computers, to make these fantastically powerful microcomputers that we shall need in the future. What is nanotech? Well, you know, there's all this about nanorobots, but it basically um, what we can do is we've, we can use these as little devices. We've made a molecule that just is a bit like a spring, okay? A little shock absorber. And these are interesting because you can, we can use that in materials to give those, those materials strength over and above that which we expect because we can use it to take the impact. Of, of a force. You get the idea? So that's what nanotechnology is. It's not about little robots that are going to eat you up and turn anything into grey goo. It's about making devices on a nanoscale that we already have on a macroscopic scale and perhaps use them in the future in, in various devices. And in fact, have you heard of this guy? Well, let's see what he did. Just over 200 years ago, he presented a paper just like this. He was gave a talk at the Manchester Literary and Philosophical Society and this was one of the images that he showed and if we look at that and blow it up it's actually one third of it, it's CO2 so if you want to know who the first nanotechnologist is it was actually Dalton and if we want to know some things about C60 how small is it? Okay. well let's look at the earth and let's shrink the earth down by a hundred million which is ten to the 8. 
a million is 10 to the 6th, 100 million is 10 to the 8. If you shrink that down by a factor of 100 million or 10 to the 8, then you have something the size of a soccer ball. Okay? So the ratio of the soccer ball to the, to the size of the earth, or the diameter of the soccer ball to the diameter, is a factor of 100 million. Now let's shrink the football down by the same amount, and what you have is the C60 molecule. So that's what we're talking about in nanoscale architecture. We're talking about building things which are 100 million times smaller than a soccer ball. And that is done by chemistry. Okay? And we are now really starting to work, not in just making molecules like alcohol or whatever. Okay? We're starting to think about molecules that do things. Okay? And that is a very exciting sort of... So basically nanotechnology is at least 200 years old. It's not new. And this is the first nanoscientist. So we've got a carbon construction kit. Okay? Oh, I I'm still in hyperlink mode. This has been linearized for various purposes. And I keep forgetting. Okay? Um, so what can we use it? We can make flat sheets of hexagons. Okay? We can make C60, make round spheres out of carbon. Okay? We can make C70. We can make small cages like this one. And we can make big cages. This is 240. We can make molecules like the one that I handed around. We can make nanotubes, okay? Conducting wires. We can make these shock absorbers, okay? So this, this network is incredibly flexible. We can make flat sheets. We can make positively curved sheets. Positively and negatively curved sheets. And even more interestingly curved sheets like that, okay? I'm going to come to the last part of what I want to say, okay? And that's science and the media. Someone this morning said I looked like this guy. I was not too pleased. I got to have a haircut, Mark. Where I'm going to, I mean, okay. Uh, um, this is a typical picture of a scientist, okay? I, t I took my glasses off and tried, but I think this really pisses me off no end because, in a sense, that's how the media represents scientists, okay? And uh, this is another one. In fact, this is a drawing in the local newspaper when we discovered C60, and it said, carbon copy of the secret of life, and the newspaper decided that was a drawing of me that, you know, because they didn't have a photograph. And a student wrote, fantastic likeness, Harry, on this thing. I made him do an extra year for his PhD for, 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 for writing that, okay. Um, but this is the problem. Can we shake off our mad media image? And where does this come from? Back to the future. And here's the culprit. Who's this? What did he do? What, what's that? Does everybody agree with that? Well, you're wrong. Today's the day I reveal that. Everybody thinks he did that. But that guy's an imposter. He didn't do it. I'm now going to reveal to you who actually did it. That's the guy that did it. Who's that? Pardon? <laughs> it's Einstein. He was 17 when he first started thinking of these things. The old geezer was way past it. I'm way past it. In fact... Someone's telling me he was even 13 when he started to think about these problems. He was as your age. Science is for people your age, not for old geezers like me. 
Okay? And that's a very important thing, is that the whole concept of the mad scientist based on the old Einstein, who was 60 or 70 years old. Okay? In fact, you know, he's at least, I mean, he's definitely smarter than this guy. I mean, this guy's a Scientologist on top of everything else, okay? <laughs> I mean, he, unbelievable. Anyway, uh, however, these are the young scientists, Jim Heath and Sean O'Brien, who work with me, and Yuan Liu from China, and Jonathan Hare from the UK. Uh, we were working together on these things. And I want you to realize, and I think it's, I'm so pissed off with the media always showing mad scientists based on, if only Einstein had cut his hair. If only I'd cut my hair, all right, then this would be better. So those are the things. I'd forgotten what that was going to be. This is one of my favorite images. It's, it's actually from a magazine. It's about 30 years old. It's one of the most beautiful photographs I've ever seen. And somehow, for me, it epitomizes the most important aspect of life, and that is the only reason that we're here is because of the sun. The only reason that these lights are running is that old sunlight has been trapped by fossils, or by foss in fossil fuel, by animals and vegetation that has long died over millions of years. And we've got a problem, and it's sustainability and survival. And as far as I'm concerned, the most important question that confronts us today is how to survive. And I... I'm going to be well past it. I think I'm going to survive as long as I'm alive, but I think you guys have got a problem. And certainly if it isn't you, your children will. Because we cannot go on as we're doing at the moment. It's impossible. You just have to look at what fuel is available, how fast we're using it up, uh, look at our technologies that we have at the present moment, and we can see that we cannot go on like this. We are living, you are living, at the moment where your life is totally dependent on energy and fossil fuel. And my view is that some fundamental advances, what I mean by that is advances that we don't know at this point have to be made, and only young people will be able to make them. And the fundamental sciences of sustainability are molecular sciences. These are chemistry, molecular physics, biological chemistry, and the nanosciences. And we need smart people to go into that because I think it's the only show in town. And my first three high sustainability technologies are splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen. Unless, I think unless we solve that problem, we've got, we've got serious difficulties. Efficient solar electricity production. At least a third and maybe half the world doesn't have electricity. Half the world doesn't have pure water. You know, it's easy just to forget that, okay? A quarter of the world is deficient in things like vitamin D. Um, and fi finally, another one is genetic development of wheat that can fix its own nitrogen. What do I mean by that? 70% of the world's food is grown with inorganic fertilizers produced by what's called the harbor process. Anyone heard of the harbor process? Yes. You take nitrogen, okay, and hydrogen, put it over an iron catalyst at 1,000 degrees, and you get ammonia, okay, which is then spread on the land. Where does the 1,000 degrees come from? Fossil fuel. Where does the hydrogen come from? Fossil fuel. Okay. 10% of our fossil fuel is just spread on the land for food. Okay. Think about it. Not just in electricity, not just in transport, but in our food. 
this has become my favourite animal. Does anybody know what it is? Yeah, that's right. It's a dung beetle. And if we were not dung beetles, we estimate that the world would be about 25 feet deep in elephant crap. Okay, Probably here in Australia, rabbit and kangaroo crap. Maybe even deeper. There are dung beetles all over the world actually clearing up all this garbage. So it's a very important animal from the garbage that is produced by animals. Okay, But what about the garbage produced by us? We're animals. What are we doing? If we look at the world and we look more deeply at it, we find a field. This is a field in England. And these, this is not grass. Do you know what this is? Anybody, any idea? I think someone said it. What do you think they are? Yeah, refrigerators. Okay. There are 40,000 refrigerators in this field. This was a company that was apparently trying to dispose of these refrigerators ecologically, but they were just dumping them in the field. And they found three other fields with about 40,000 in them. Over 100,000 refrigerators just dumped. Nothing being done with them. But it's a sort of symptomatic of the world we live in. I'm sure you've been on a train and you've seen the field full of cars or whatever, you know? Garbage wherever we are. So we are an animal that is producing crap, taking fossil fuels, burning it, <coughs> taking it and dumping this crap out there, and there are no dung beetles to get rid of it. So we've got to develop our own dung beetles to know how to produce this and get rid of it. So this is, I think, the sort of logo of the future for you to actually work out. We need a dung beetle to clean the world up. Okay. Genetic engineering. A lot has been talked about this, about this whole oh, genetic engineering. It is as old as the human race. It is as old as life, genetic engineering. For instance, genetic engineering by humans. Do you know when the first genetic engineering by humans was carried out? Anybody know? Was it 10 years ago? 20 years ago? Well, let me show you. What's that animal? Right. Without any knowledge of DNA, we've made it into one of those. Okay. We've been able to manipulate the wolf into a chihuahua. Okay. That's just by playing around. We could do the same with human beings without any knowledge of DNA. We now have the power to do that almost in one go. I don't think the human race is ready for the... It hasn't got the common sense to handle the technologies that are coming about, the genetic technologies. We now have the ability to actually change the course of evolution of the human race. Okay, Think about it. Decisions. Somebody will make one decision, other people will make others. One problem is there, is there are very few people who understand mathematics or science. I'll give you an example. In Britain, a couple of years ago in the newspaper, senior nurses discussed the problem stemming from nurses' inability to do simple maths. They put the decimal points in the wrong place so the patient could receive either 10 times more or 10 times less medication than intended. If you're lucky. <coughs> One guy in the hospital service told me he said we could save more lives 
lives than almost all the drugs put together if nurses could do simple maths and carry out the ratios that were needed to work out body weight drug applications, okay? I would not let a single kid out of school unless they could go to the Xerox or the photocopier with something like this, and I say, in one go, I want you to put this onto this sheet of paper. And you know most people don't do it because you look in the, in the waste paper basket and you look in there and you see this picture bigger and smaller and they iterate on 25 attempts to get it on this piece of paper. Because they can't take a ruler, measure this and measure that and take the ratio and find out that it must be about 1.4 is what they've got to put in. I can work that. And they can't do that. And I tell you, 90% of people out there cannot do that. And that's why when you go to hospital, just check that the nurses looking after you can do that. Sit in the bed and say, will you just expand this on the copier for me to check? <laughs> and if, if they can't do it, go. A friend of mine was in hospital and he heard one nurse say to another, how many milliliters are there in a microliter? All right. We could be out by 10 to the 6 if we're not careful. All right. So that's the problem. Right, you, people say to me, I want to do something, I don't want to do science because it's not humanitarian. What a load of crap that is. Malaria is one of the biggest problems. Every 30 seconds a child dies in Africa, mainly under the age of five. The death rate in Africa has multiplied by a factor of ten since the withdrawal of DDT. Okay? It's estimated that DDT has saved about half a billion lives. Okay? 500 million lives. Just DDT. Okay? By killing mosquitoes effectively and cheaply. We don't have an alternative at the present time. There's a lot of work going on there. So if you want to save not just a few lives by becoming a doctor, but millions of lives, try to get a really effective vaccine for, for malaria if you can or tuberculosis, or many of the other problems. Work out how to get pure water, some very simple, cheap way of getting pure water out to half the world that doesn't have it. If you want to do something else, get a very efficient uh, solar electricity production system. Silicon is extremely expensive. We know that the amount of energy falling on the Earth's surface is enormous. But if we could lay out a plastic sheet which with plastic electronic cells which is now on the cards we undo it cheaply then we can provide electricity and therefore some of the amenities that can save people's lives in the underdeveloped world in fact a friend of mine who is working on this making uh, plastic solar cells has told me that maybe C60 has improved the efficiency of electricity uh, uh, production in these uh, plastic solar cell production facilities by a factor of 10 and that would be really exciting because that would really be a humanitarian asset well this child is actually waiting with its mother to see a doctor because man's greatest enemy is this fella this has killed probably more lives than anything else um, it is estimated that something like it decimated um, the Greek civilization when Alexander came back from his African sort of sort of travels and brought back the troops brought back malaria the mosquitoes passed it on and 
you know, wrought ha uh, havoc amongst the population. And uh, here is 2.7 million deaths, mainly children, each year. And here is that little child. So, a bio nano cure for malaria, and you can save people like this. And you, and you can make the difference. All right? Nanoscience and nanotech. Well, I, I do a logo. I do logos in my spare time. In fact, I think that's one of my best ones, the, the sort of koala buckyball. Um, and it's not to be confused with M&M, by the way, just in case you got that wrong. Uh, so chemistry, physics, and biology are now coming together to make molecular transistors and molecular motors. I'm going to finish off with this, one of my favorites. It says, I hope you can read it. Can you read it? It says, I am an alien creature. Can you see that all right? Okay. Uh, maybe I can do it over here. He said, uh, I was sent from another planet with a message of goodwill from my people. The message says, dear earth people, when you finally at last destroy your planet and have no place to live, you can come and live with us. And we will teach you how to live in peace and harmony. And we will give you a coupon good for 10% of all deep dish pizzas too. Sincerely, Bob. Now, the reason I love this I found it on a poster in the US, and it's by a guy called Stein, and it's a very sort of interesting cartoonist or artist, if you wish, is that first of all, he recognizes one of the problems that we face, is that we can't even solve our problems without punching each other on the nose. Now, it doesn't matter too much if you're in the playground and you punch and then you make them afterwards, but if you kill somebody, uh, we have a bunch of politicians who don't seem to be able to solve our problems without going to war. All right, I, I find it incredible. And then they complain about others who are actually are blowing themselves up for other reasons. I mean, it's just incredible that we have politicians who send us to war. They don't send me to war. I'm too old. But you guys, that really pisses me off. Old men sending young people to die. But at the same time, he's got a sense of humor. And what I don't see in many politicians is a sense of humor. I don't see that. As long as we understand the big problems that we face, not just trying to solve our problems without hitting each other and killing each other, and not only the fact that we really have a problem of sustainability, but I don't think it's much point unless we retain a bit of a sense of humor all right, about things. Uh, so that's part of it. And I'm now going to back, get back to John Cornforth who I think is the greatest living Australian. Um, John's a fantastic guy, um, and he wrote a, an article called Scientists as Citizens. And um, it's on our website. This is the website, www.vega.org.uk. You don't have to remember. Just go, Suzanne Vega. Oh, yeah, put in Vega. Look about three. In Australia, we're seven below, but in the U.S., we're just two below Suzanne Vega. In the U.K., we're above Suzanne Vega. You Australians are backward if you got me be Vega below Suzanne Vega. But anyway, the Vega website, and we got an interview with him. He's, yeah, he, he's been deaf since the age of 20, but he's overcome it. Spend a bit of time listening to the greatest Australian, a great humanitarian with a sense of humor who's made a massive contribution to chemistry. In fact, he made one of the contributions to penicillin because he was w working with people who were look, uh, studying penicillin at the uh, beginning of the war. In fact, he and his wife Rita, who came from Australia, they got a, a scholarship to go to Cambridge and they went on a boat. They weren't married at the time, they were uh, girlfriend, boyfriend, and uh, whilst they were on the boat, the war broke out. And they had to make a decision 
whether to go on to carry on their studies or come back and they decide to go on to Cambridge and they're both world-class scientists and someone who has overcome you might you might feel that you know wow you've got some disability or this that and the other but you know if you're deaf um, it's a it's a problem because it deafness stops your communication capability um, I'm, I'm going a bit deaf too it gets very quite difficult okay but to be deaf from the age of 20 for someone who's got a sense of humor tremendous um, eloquent it's been difficult and it's a pity because he would have been a fantastic lecturer however he writes well and I recommend that every young Australian reads this article scientists as citizens it's on our website and here it is and he writes I've only taken one thing out of it the most important so if you are a scientist you realize before long that if the future is any in anyone's hands it's in yours okay I hope this lecture has shown that to be the case uh, on our website we've got lectures workshops interviews careers discussions and much more we've made over a hundred programs 50 was shown on BBC too and they're for people who are interested in science as well okay with that the end of the presentation I hope you found it interesting and thanks for letting me have a go at you guys Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? Oh, God. Mr. Anderson. Oh. 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 The movie show on the podcast network. We watch them so you don't have to. www.thepodcastnetwork.com slash movie.